Welcome to season three of the Good Life Review podcast. I'm your host, Trelena Daniel. The Good Life Review is a literary magazine you can find at thegoodlifereview.com. And this podcast highlights the up and coming writers with incredible talent and expertise. They share their worldly insights, have brilliant writing recommendations, and are incredibly insightful to learn from. This season, I'm working with a team of editors to do various podcast episodes with different interviewers. We hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to reach out if you want to learn more about our lit magazine or want to learn more about our highlighted authors. Angelo Borda, uh, having written Precipitate. Great. Um, So tell me what inspired this piece. Why did you write it? Well, I inspired, it was inspired by real life events. I did in fact order a Christmas tree for Christmas and I ordered a silver, a silver Charlie Brown 1950s throwback tree. And instead I received a blood red, hideous red tinsel tree that when it lit up, it just honestly looked like some sort of vortex into a place you didn't want to go to. It was as unchristmassy as it's possible to imagine. And I do have a black cat and she was sitting under that red tree glowering and looking very unchristmassy. And that's kind of how it, how it started. But um, what, what I'm playing with in this, it's a, it's a short piece, it's flash, but really what I was dealing with is the same thing so many people have been dealing with during quarantine, which is holidays alone. And just at that time here in California, it had suddenly gone from being, well, wear your masks, you'll probably be okay, to we're not, we're not socializing for a couple of months here. Um, and so like most of my family and friends here for Christmas, I wasn't, I wasn't really seeing anybody. Um, and that's the time of year when you most hope to see people or when your psychology perhaps needs it the most to feel holly and jolly and all that. So the, the flash is really about, um, you know, being alone during the holidays and also knowing uh, what it's like to know someone who is having memory issues, to care about someone who either has dementia or some other cognitive decline by which, you know, they're beginning to forget you. And so that those were the three, um, the three things I was playing with. And on the night that I wrote it, I actually was waiting for it to rain and it wouldn't. And it seemed like the more I waited for it to rain, the less likely it was to do so, even though my weather app kept saying it's raining right now. And I would look outside and think, no, it's not even vaguely raining. And then finally, just when I gave up, all of a sudden we had a downpour. So that that was that, that was the inspiration behind the story. When did you decide that you had a love for writing and that you wanted to kind of pursue this? Where did this all start? I believe it was in fourth grade. And Mrs. Woolhouse assigned us to write poetry. And she gave us this absolutely awful flowery stationery that she sent us home with. And I, I do not remember what instructions we had, but she, we were to write a poem on this flowery stationery. And I remember the stationery was so beautiful to me. And I was so enchanted by the idea that 
maybe I had the power to write something. And I'm sure that what I wrote was something like roses are red, violets are blue, and I love my mom. How about you? <laughs> but Mrs. Woolhouse was so encouraging. She, for some reason, she decided that I had a knack. And that was the first moment I can think of where I thought maybe I could do this. And um, I really do think that the encouragement of teachers when you're young can, it can affect the course of your life. And I'm sure she had no notion what she unleashed <clears throat> when she told me I was good at writing. But really, I, for a lot of years, I was a painter. And probably around 24 is when I started to get serious about novel writing. And it was a very solitary pursuit. I wasn't trained in it. I wasn't even particularly well read, except for the classics that you're obliged to read in high school. But there was just something about the solitary nature of processing life into, into words that struck me and it caught me. And I, I was hooked on it well before I understood just how bloody hard it is to become a good writer. People in their early 20s were hooked, were hooked with the idea that we're, we're going to write, you know, we're the next Zadie Smith. We're going to write our first manuscript and it's going to burst into the scene and, and change the world forever. Like Wonder Boys, this, this, you know, debut novel is going to shake the earth. And in fact, the first novel I wrote was really bad. It was really awful. <laughs> no one should ever see it or know about it or read it. <laughs> and in fact, most of like the first five or six years that I was writing, um, really, I wasn't writing anything that should have seen the light of day. And I came to a point probably when I was 28, uh, where it suddenly occurred to me that this was the pursuit of a lifetime and that to become as good as I wanted to be would take decades. And at that point, I, I turned away from sort of the let's go to the literary conference and look for an agent thing. I just turned away from that. And I spent 10 years writing every night uh, without a lot of feedback, without, you know, constructive learning environment. I just, I did it to try to get better at it. And eventually I have gotten to the point where I can write things that I am proud to put out in the world, but I am still learning. And I will be learning my whole life, I think, like all good writers. It's very wise. I didn't really pick this up until my 40s. So I was, I was never disillusioned that it would be. <laughs> you know, in your 40s, you've, you've accrued enough stories and wisdom to maybe have a little bit more to say than I had to say in my 20s. <laughs> now, you said you weren't necessarily well-read when you started this whole process, but now like um, in your, in your current role, how, what kind of things are you reading or what is, what inspires you? The vast majority of what I read is professional because I'm a professional editor. So, and also I'm the editor of the Santa Barbara literary journal. And so at a moment like this, when I'm, I'm in production of two out, you know, outstanding volumes of, fiction and poems, the vast majority of what I read are submissions and or clients who have written a novel who want me to help them fix it. So there are whole periods of time where in fact, I don't actually have time to read. 
because I have to choose between that and those few precious hours that I have where I would like to write my own work. But so I have a huge list stack right right in front of me here of books that I am going to to this year and two that I'm really excited about are authors who I've already read, who I love, who have books out this year. Um, Susanna Clark has has Piranesi out, which I've heard wonderful things about. And Erin Morgenstern, who wrote The Night Circus, has The Starless Sea out. So those are kind of more in the realm of fantasy, I guess you would say, but I don't like... I don't like badly written fantasy. <laughs> I like things that are stylized and poetic and beautiful that just kind of make your jaw drop. Um, so that's that's that, that'll be my treat once I get the two volumes that I'm working on of the literary journal out. So you said you've been working on writing a lot, writing your own pieces. Do you have anything uh, coming up in 2021 or any other submissions that we should be looking for in the, in the future that you're excited about? Um, I did have good luck with publishing this year. I had about 10 acceptances, which this was after a year where I do not kid. I sent out 70 submissions for short stories and I got like 68 rejections. And I was just on the lip of saying, maybe I just need to go back to novel writing. And then I got one, one acceptance and I was like, oh, Oh my, oh my gosh. Okay. Someone said yes. <laughs> and um, so after that, it was, I honestly can't think of the names right off the top of my head, but uh, there, I was so delighted this last year to actually have pieces placed. And it started to give me an understanding of what I was talking about earlier, which is that if you send out a 5,000 word story, it really doesn't matter how finally you've wordsmithed it, how stunning it is. It really doesn't matter. Many places just won't even consider a piece that long. But if you write, you know, a 2000 word, you know, flash, flash fiction that um, kind of avoids vampires and, and other things that I've been known to, to write about, no werewolves. If you stick to literary fiction and you write something that's a thousand words or 2000 words, it's, it's so much easier to find someone who needs that. And so that's kind of what I learned the last year is if you need to write that 5,000 word story about werewolves, go ahead and do it, but don't take it personally if it doesn't find a home um so coming up this year i am i'm back at work on a novel it's a futuristic dystopian sort of blade runner inspired um set of stories that i'm working on that um is uh hopefully not too depressing but it's set it's kind of a futuristic story so it's kind of like the 1930s but set in 2300 um and uh that's what i'm going to be working on this year well, I look forward to reading that. I'm excited. I enjoy a good fantasy, a good fantasy <laughs> novel. I've read a few not so great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, one of our quintessential questions um, is what does the good life mean to you? Obviously that's the title of our literary magazine. So mm -hmm. what would you say the good life means to you? Um, well, I'm a food writer, among my other preoccupations. So 
my best memories in life really are um, wonderful meals that I shared with. And let us know they're not meals that I cooked because I'm an awful cook, but um, is good food shared with my family and my friends. Um, I live in Santa Barbara, which has there are no shortage of places where you can eat something lovely and look at the ocean while you're doing so. And so the good life for me is good food, good friends and family, being able to wear my flip flops out into the world for like 300 days a year. I need sunlight to survive. Um, I need warmth. I just, I tried the East Coast and it didn't go well for me. So friends, family, and I, you know, I also consider creative expression and the pursuit of crafting it well, whatever that might be, to be hugely important to a good life. Before she reads us her piece, I wanted to give you a little bit of a bio for Silver Web. She is the editor and founder of the Santa Barbara Literary Journal. Her nonfiction has been featured in Food and Home, Still Arts Quarterly, The Pacifica Post, and other websites. Her fiction and poems have been accepted by Peregrine, Bergeon, Danse Macabre, Underwood, and Pink Panther, as well as the anthologies of The Tertiary Lodger, Delirium Corridor, and Running Wild. She has participated as a panelist at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference and the Santa Barbara Literary Local Authors Day. You can find her more details at silverweb.com and santabarbaraliteraryjournal.com. Precipitate. Leonard had forgotten Christmas, or he'd forgotten her on Christmas, and it was easier to think that it was one rather than the other. Laney turned on her heater, a red enamel stove. Nietzsche sometimes singed his fur on it when he sauntered by, flicking his tail like the baton of a band leader. She opened the window and the door that led to the moon-dark patio. Rain at nine, phone says so, she remarked to Nietzsche, who worked under the unfortunate Christmas tree. Unfortunate because it was not green, not even silver. It was blood red, the red of dahlias or a femme fatale's lipstick, a type O tree, the kind Dracula might order were he in the habit of celebrating the birth of Christ. It was not that she was in love with Leonard. There was not enough illusion left to weave a romance with. She knew that he failed at most endeavors, that many women had loved him and lost by it, that he cared truly about a few things, and she had been one of those things for a few minutes. And although she excelled at killing herself in the figurative sense, was actually quite bad at killing herself literally, she had come to Leonard so bruised to begin with that it was a disappointment akin to summoning one last sigh after having the air punched out of you by a ruthless fist. No, she was not in love with Leonard. It was that he knew how to have conversations that mattered. Laney plugged in the tree, red as the flaming torch of Hades. Nietzsche blinked at her from his perch under it, dissatisfied and murderous. Laney checked the weather app, 100% chance of precipitation at 9 p.m., yet it was perfectly still through the window screen, no hint of violent clouds massing. She opened her email and wrote, Dear Target, I ordered the silver tinsel tree. I received a blood red tinsel tree instead. There is not enough time to return it, so I put it up with ornaments. It has been called Rosemary's Tenenbaum and Tree of Terror by friends. When my black cat sits under it, his eyes glow, like the tree is a vortex into hell. If this doesn't summarize 2020, what does? Best, Laney Brett. She sent the email and checked for texts, nothing. It must be terrible for Leonard to slowly forget everything, but how much worse to be the one who is slowly forgotten. It was raining now, the weather app said. She heard only the lone drip of the garden hose among the darkened camellias and bougainvillea. 
the lemon and orange trees and terracotta pots, even the rosemary plant that Leonard had gifted her. What's its name, she'd asked. It needs a name? I think that would be nice. Aida, then. She wondered if she was like Aida, like the rosemary. When he forgot her completely, when it came to that, would it kill her? Would she die for lack of sun? That is what Leonard was, something warm and illuminating, oxygen when she couldn't find a breath. The downside of being quiet and stoic is that everyone assumes that if you ask for nothing, you need nothing. Except Leonard, he never assumed. She told him once, I don't trust anyone who hasn't considered suicide. And he nodded, said, suffering is the way we write, the way we paint, maybe the only reason to do either. He'd given her one of his hugs then, warm and deep, not in a hurry, not afraid. Laney's pulse sparked at a blip in her email, but it was from customer service, not Leonard. Well, let's, say what let's see what they say, Nietzsche. Dear customer, we've refunded the $25.59 for your purchase. We're sorry it didn't meet your expectations. Laney felt cheated that it only took two minutes for their bots to initiate a refund. She wanted to call Leonard to tell him about the blood red tree the irony in grasping for a sense of connection from an automated reply, the modern alienation of looking to her phone rather than the sky to tell her the weather, and they would proceed to have a conversation that mattered. But if she called him now, it would go to voicemail. She could predict this better than any fortune teller. She put on her socks with the peppermint stripes, slipped under the covers, placed her phone on the pillow opposite hers, the one a lover might have occupied if she had a lover. The sound was like the prickle of skin, if the prickle of skin could make a sound. Rain, a few drops of it, finally, off kilter, snickering and snapping, the kind of jazz people say they understand, although they do not. Miles Davis rain, a blood-red nail tapping against glass. How futile to describe something as simple as water falling from the sky. She texted, the rain sounds like eggs frying and popping in a pan. Merry Christmas, sweetheart, XOXO. Leonard would check his text in a few days. In a week, he'd call, say, was I supposed to call you? And she would ask him what he'd been doing on Christmas Eve, drinking brandy, she thought, and watching Fellini films, and forgetting, forgetting, forgetting. As if it was in a hurry, as if it knew the weather app had been stalling, lying on its behalf, the rain suddenly bloomed and ballooned into something musical, hitting the roof, a humming, luminous sound like distance applause, a symphony swelling, then a furor, something ruthless, like the fist that had stolen her breath. In the dark, it must be washing away dirt, flooding the patio, floating the fallen camellias away. When the sun rose tomorrow, brilliant and warm, it would light on cherry red bricks, newborn palms, a rosemary named Aida, all the verdant world wiped clean of memory's dust, gleaming and new. If you want to read more, you can head to thegoodlifereview.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Review podcast. We are very excited to keep producing these podcasts and bringing you great stories from our current writers. A huge thank you to our editorial team that is mostly based out of Nebraska and almost entirely made up of writers from the flyover states, which is why we don't want your work to be overlooked. If you have a piece you'd like to submit, head on over to our submittable page, thegoodlifereview.submittable.com. Don't forget to like us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at The Good Life Review and on Twitter at The Good Life Lit Mag. Thank you for listening.